Section 17 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. The Rise of the Netherlands Schools We have already discussed the origins of polyphony and the condition of secular popular music in the dim periods of the Middle Ages. We shall confine ourselves in this chapter for the most part to the development of polyphony, the art of music within the church, not because it was only within the church that polyphony was perfected, but because the art can be most easily and consistently traced in church music. None of the great composers whose importance we shall discuss restricted himself only to religious music, but all gave the greater part of their energy thereto and most of the available knowledge of music from 1300 to 1600 is related to the church. It must not be forgotten, on the other hand, that secular music exerted a vigorous influence upon ecclesiastical music, an influence constantly combated by the church authorities, yet constantly triumphant. The two styles acted and reacted upon each other in a manner which may be observed at various periods of musical history. The study of the development of music from 1300 to 1600 is largely the study of the art or science of polyphony. Polyphony, or counterpoint, is primarily the art of combining two or more voice parts so that they shall maintain their independent character and individual interest and still harmonise with each other. Early musical notes were written as dots, or points, one voice under or against another, whereby the term contrapunctum, meaning simply note against note, originated. As has been previously explained, the first, or more important, melody, called subject, theme, or cantus firmus, was generally placed in the tenor, so called from tenera, to hold, on account of its holding the melody, and the addition of one or more melodies to the cantus firmus, or theme, under strict rules and regulations, is the art of counterpoint. One of the most important devices for enhancing interest in the principal melody is known as imitation, that is, the repetition of a theme or phrase, or parts thereof, either at a different pitch from the original, or in a different voice part, with or without rhythmic or other modifications, which, however, must not be so great as to destroy the resemblance. Combining, as it does, variety with unity of impression, and offering the composer opportunity for the display of great ingenuity, the art of imitation grew rapidly in importance, and became one of the chief and most characteristic beauties of polyphonic writing. To trace the growth of that style of writing, which has been called the Netherlands style, is our present purpose. Previously, we traced the beginnings of polyphony in the stiff organum, and the growth of the so-called menstrual system by which all music was reduced to triple rhythm and bound by mathematical laws, indifferent to beauty, relentlessly rigid and monotonous. During this period, the musical centre of Europe was Paris, where the organists of Notre Dame were the most influential composers. Here, the reaction against the system found voice in theoretical discussion, though this again was probably only the reflection of what had been going on in actual practice, both in France and elsewhere. Indeed, it is claimed by some writers, notably Riemann, that certain composers of Florence, under the direct influence of troubadour song, were the first to throw off the fetters of musical dogma. 
England, too, has a serious claim for priority in the new movement, which was influenced everywhere by the spontaneous fluorescence of secular song. But the name Ars Nova, by which the reform was designated by its protagonists, in contradistinction to the Ars Antiqua of their Franconian predecessors, has led historians to connect it with the probable author of the treatise entitled The Ars Nova. Philippe de Vitry, Bishop of Meaux, 1290-1361, is said to be the author of this treatise, as well as of several others dealing with measured music, proportions, and the relative value of the symbols of notation. In it he advocates counterpoint for several voices, rhythmic variety of a free use of chromatic alterations. None of his own compositions has been preserved to us, however. Another writer, known by the name of Jean de Maury, left several works of similarly radical character. He is not to be confused, however, with a theorist of the same name designated as the Norman, who taught at the Sorbonne from 1321 on, and whose teaching was so conservative as really to constitute a reaction against the new method, the Ars Nova. This effort toward freedom was characterized first by the reintroduction of duple time into church music, in which triple time, on account of its symbolistic connection with the Trinity, had long held the field. Secondly, by the emancipation of individual voices by means of a greater variety of rhythm. Thirdly, by the prohibition of parallel octaves and fifths. And lastly, by the differentiation between half and full cadences, which in homophonic music, in plain chant and in secular song, had long been recognized. The introduction of the natural duple rhythm into music written for the church demanded the addition of new signs to the menstrual system of notation, for it was necessary that singers should be informed whether they were to sing according to the triple or double scheme. Thus there appear about this period new time signs. Of these, a semibrieve, still called, by the way, tempus perfectum, circle, signified the division of the brieve into three or perfect time, a half-circle signified the division of the breve into two semi-breves, and this was imperfect time. A dot within the circle, or the half-circle, indicated that the semi-breve was to be divided into three minims, but without the dot, the semi-breve equaled only two minims. The three-part division of the semi-breve constituted major prolation, the two-part minor prolation. Perfect or imperfect time was sung twice as fast if the time sign was cut by a line. The second of these cut signs, that of a line through a half circle, still survives in the modern sign, signifying a la brave time. It appears likely that de Vitry himself was the first to think of using coloured notes to signify still another genus of rhythmical subdivision, called proportio hemiolia, and that he was the first to use the term contrapunctus, or counterpoint, instead of descant. Through lack of actual examples of the period, we are unable to tell how thoroughly and readily church composers adopted the methods of the Ars Nova, but eventually their advocacy was of momentous importance. It is true that secular music was the first to benefit by the advance, for it preserved naturally all the elements which the new law proposed to regulate. Hence the first form, that which constitutes the first ground of interaction, the transition to the polyphonic form of church music, was the popular chanson, an elementary form of song, 
evidently developed from the canson and the ballad of the troubadours etc which as we know were composed for a solo voice with an improvised instrumental accompaniment according to riemann this development of the chanson first went forward in italy in connection with the movement known as the florentine ars nova a detailed account of which we have chosen to reserve for our next chapter the italian ars nova which is held by modern historians to have influenced the french ars nova in various ways and to have transmitted to it a style of composition in which the upper voice was freely invented and harmonically interpreted though in a rude manner by the accompanying voice or voices a style which by fourteen hundred was fully developed these chansons were it should be noted like their prototype chiefly for one solo voice with instrumental accompaniment and varied by instrumental preludes interludes and postludes purely vocal polyphony in chansons was rare before fifteen hundred though examples of an elementary kind of part songs have also been preserved and as the polyphonic style advanced these eventually superseded the instrumentally accompanied solo monodic song meantime however the church had fallen heir to these primarily secular inspirations and developed under the rules of the ars nova a freer contrapuntal style whose chief vehicles were the mass and the motet forms whose general characteristics have been explained in previous chapters characteristic of this new polyphony is the so-called imitative style whose real origin has never been discovered and which is the distinguishing feature of the schools about to be discussed the first indications of this imitative or netherland style are found in the works of jeanno lescarel and guillaume de marchaud died circa thirteen seventy two marchaud is the composer of the first known four-part mass which was performed at the coronation of charles v in thirteen sixty it must be admitted that this is not a very good specimen even of early polyphony the parallel octaves and fifths already prohibited by musical authorities had no terrors for marchaud and his discords amount to nothing less than cacophony it is a historical landmark however and serves as a starting point from which to trace the development of contrapuntal methods in justice to marchaud it should perhaps be said that he was a much better poet than composer and his verses deserve a higher rank than his music which includes besides the mass two and three-part chansons rondeaux and motets for some years longer paris continued to be as it had been for more than two hundred years the musical centre of europe the prestige it had held so long was lost ultimately not only through an actual decline of original power but through an abuse of the power they possessed the standards of the old organ masters of notre dame if somewhat dry were at least scholarly but we begin to see in the early fourteenth century a deterioration and a tendency among singers to make a display of their ability in improvisation canons and rounds of that time and even long after were written in a kind of shorthand understood presumably by every trained singer but nevertheless giving some freedom of judgment to the performer which was easily abused the first phrase of the countess firmus was usually written out after this a few signs in latin meaning nothing to the modern musician unskilled in the mysteries of this art would indicate the time of entrance and relative pitch for the other voices 
imitation was almost continuously in use. The accidentals of modern notation were but rarely indicated, even as late as the time of Palestrina, and the key signature of the present day was unknown. However, the training of the chapel singers was such as to give a thorough knowledge of the use of accidentals and of the musical symbols of the time. Intricate rules for their guidance were laid down, but carried away by the flood of new ideas and unrestrained by scholarly fastidiousness, many of them indulged in liberties which loaded down the pure melody of the venerable plain chant with inappropriate ornamentations and often rendered it hopelessly unrecognisable. In protest against these unwarranted melismas and tasteless innovations of singers, especially of the cathedral choirs and of the papal chapel, the famous bull of 1322 was issued by Pope John XXII. It was not a protest primarily either against the popular full bardon, which was generally in use until after the return of the papacy to Rome, 1377, or the contrapuntal school per se. It was certainly not against the methods of the Ars Nova, as is proved by the use of certain technical terms peculiar to the Ars Antiqua. It is against the abuses of the latter school the obscuring of the plain song melodies and the violation of the spirit of church music by frivolous rhythmic variations ornamentation and juggling with counter melodies often of profane character many other protests of a like nature came from the papal chair during the next two hundred and fifty years and we shall have occasion to see in a later chapter the result of the struggle between religious decorum on the one hand and on the other the vagaries of the artistic mind in the throes of development. Yet it must be granted that the masters of the old French school deserve no small credit for their scientific and practical labours. During the time of their ascendancy, the resources of notation were increased, double counterpoint was cultivated, a greater freedom in metre and rhythm was introduced, the several voices became more nearly independent, and an extraordinary degree of attention was paid to the problems involved in mensuration. They failed, however, in reaching a point at which true artistic composition, in the larger sense, begins. Of symmetrical arrangement based upon the lines of a preconceived design, they had no idea. Their highest aspirations extended no farther than the enrichment of a given melody with such harmonies as they were able to improvise at a moment's notice whereas composition, properly so called, depends for its existence upon the invention, or at least upon the selection, of a definite musical idea, which the genius of the composer presents, now in one form and now in another, until the exhaustive discussion of its various aspects produces a work of art, as consistent in its integrity as the conduct of a scholastic thesis or a dramatic poem. It was this very quality of design which distinguished the work of the Flemish composers, who, about the middle of the 14th century, gained the dominating position among European musicians. With the decline of the old French school, the musical leadership of Europe passed into the hands of the early Netherlanders, called by some historians the Gallo-Belgian school, which flourished, roughly, from the middle of the 14th to the middle of the 15th century. It will be remembered that the 14th century was an epoch of great prosperity in the Netherlands. The ancient nobility had lost power, while the towns, with their astute and far-seeing traders, had acquired extraordinary strength. Earlier, many serfs had been enfranchised, 
and thus a large body of sturdy workers was liberated into the independent trades and soon became wealthier and more powerful than the nobles the trade guilds and burghers were uncompromising in resisting the encroachments both of the feudal lords and of the church and were therefore enabled to turn their energies toward commerce and agriculture unchecked by the influences of a corrupt government great factories flourished vessels of dutch merchants plied their trade in nearly every sea population wealth and intelligence increased the ancient towns bruges louvain antwerp ghent ypres still bear testimony to these days of prosperity in their magnificent examples not of ecclesiastical architecture as in italy but of splendid structures for municipal and domestic use it was among these prosperous and music-loving people that the art of contrapuntal writing was nourished they did not invent or create polyphony as has long been believed but they found pleasure in the fact that the principles of music could be reduced to laws and rules and the more intricate the rules the more the true netherlanders delighted in them in fact it was this very tendency that smothered polyphony itself in course of time but not before a vast amount of systematized knowledge had been preserved for their successors the service of the pope's chapel up to the time of its return to rome from avignon in thirteen seventy seven was sung in faux bourdon or in the still older method of extemporaneous descant ecclesiastical records show that after the return to rome several belgian musicians were among the singers in the papal choir these brought with them along with other music the first masses written in counterpoint that had ever been seen there among the belgians in rome in the early fifteenth century was a tenor singer named william dufay born probably in chimay in Hainaut, about fourteen hundred there has been much misapprehension concerning dufay owing to the fact that baini an italian historian seventeen seventy five to eighteen forty four gave erroneously the probable date of his death as fourteen thirty two recent researches however especially those of sir john stainer have thrown much light on the life and work of dufay and enabled historians to understand facts which hitherto had seemed irreconcilable according to this recent authority dufay received his musical education as chorister in the cathedral at cambrai which in the fifteenth century belonged to the netherlands it is famous as the seat of the archbishopric of fenelon and of dubois and for its ancient cathedral according to contemporary evidence the music of the cambrai cathedral was considered the most beautiful in europe it was but natural then that the papal choir at rome should draw what singers it could from cambrai it appears that dufay entered it as the youngest member in fourteen twenty eight and remained five years after a break he was again appointed in the following decade when he remained but a short period it was at the time a frequent custom for the church to reward whom it would by ecclesiastical appointments allowing the holder of office to reside elsewhere according to this custom dufay was appointed to the canonries of cambrai and mons both of which offices he held till his death though he removed to savoy about fourteen thirty seven and travelled somewhat in the interests of his art he died at a great age in fourteen seventy four 
His will is still preserved in the archives of Combray, and in it, among other items, he bequeaths money to the Combray altar boys. He is buried in the chapel of St. Etienne, beneath the stone he himself caused to be made, which, though mutilated, is still in existence. One of his last desires was that a certain motet of his own composition be sung at his deathbed. The chief source of our knowledge of Dufay's early works is the Manuscript Canonici Miscellaneous 213 in the Bodleian Library at Oxford, compiled not later than 1436, a portion of which has recently been explained and given to the public by Sir John Stainer. The manuscript represents the period of transition from Machot to Dufay, including the early works of the latter. They are mostly in the old mensural, black notation, and show an unusual proportion of secular pieces. Transcriptions and solutions of 60 of them, belonging to the period 1400 to 1441, are given by Stainer. Most of the pieces are dry in melody and show occasional harsh discords, but they also exhibit examples of fugal form and some crude attempts at expression. They are quite lacking in a certain sweetness of harmony characteristic of his later works, which has been traced to the influence of his famous English contemporary, John Dunstable. It appears advisable, therefore, to consider here the condition of music in England, which is thus to make itself felt upon the course of music in general. Though the 12th and 13th centuries do not, in England, show well-defined groups of musicians working toward a common end, such as constitute a school in the accepted sense, there can be no doubt that the English were ahead of their time in the early days of polyphony, and that English music strongly influenced composers on the continent. Indeed, a very considerable case for the actual origin of polyphony in England has been made out by recent historians of great authority, and the case is supported by the famous Old English canon, Summer is Ecumen In, one of the earliest extant examples of polyphonic music. The date of this interesting composition is given by Rockstrow as not later than 1250. It is a charming melody composed to a gay, naive poem in the form of a round, or canon, for six voices, and is supposed to have been written by John Fawnset, a monk of Reading. In some measures, the parallel fifths and octaves show the influence of diaphony, while in others there is excellent counterpoint, which might have been written at least 150 years later. The imitation is not confined to short phrases, but is consistently carried through the four upper voices to the close, over two independent bases. The harmony is rather limited, the F major chord being in great preponderance, but on the whole the canon shows a high degree of skill in polyphonic writing. It is, in short, a remarkable example of the working out of an inspired folk song with two systems of part writing, which, so far as we know, were not contemporaneous. One explanation of this apparent anomaly is that the composition, originally the work of a songwriter of great natural genius, was later edited or corrected by a learned musician. Parallel octaves and fifths were not considered offensive in the 13th century, and such a learned scholar might easily have let them pass, while lifting other parts of the music to an artistic form considerably in advance of popular taste. It has been supposed, on the other hand, that the composition is really the single, accidentally preserved specimen of a whole musical literature, which has otherwise been lost. 
in support of this latter theory it is urged that the art of imitation as illustrated in the canon must have reached a point of excellence beyond anything existing in france or belgium at the time and could only have been the product of a well-defined school however the case may be the song remains an isolated but for its time brilliant example testifying to the freshness vitality and beauty of early english music it should be added that under the auspices of the plain song and medieval music society of england researches have been carried on resulting in the publication of two volumes the first containing photographic reproductions of sixty of the most notable examples of english harmonized music prior to the fifteenth century the second transcriptions thereof into modern musical notation with explanatory notes the majority of the examples are written for two voices and some for three none of these however can compare in regard to workmanship with the summer canon which is also included in the collection not until the beginning of the fifteenth century do we find actual evidence of a school and it is interesting to note the points of resemblance between it and the first netherlands school both are characterized by a reliance on the plain chant melody by a conventional opening a lack of sensitiveness to discords an avoidance of the third in the closing chord and an absence of harmonic effects compared with the old french school however they show a genuine progress in the abolition of the harsher discords the use of the third in cadences not final and in the more frequent employment of imitation representatives of the early english school it is important to note were divided into two distinct branches one remaining for the most part on english soil while the other identified itself almost wholly with continental schools and in respect to style seems to belong to them in this latter group was john dunstable born about thirteen ninety in dunstable england he died in fourteen fifty three and is buried in st stephen's walbrook where an epitaph was said to be inscribed on two fair plated stones in the chancel each by other another written by the abbot of st albans is headed upon john dunstable an astrologian a mathematician a musician and what not and the six lines of elegiac latin which follow bestow upon him heartfelt praise dunstable was a writer of songs both sacred and secular one of the latter o rosa bella was discovered in the vatican in eighteen forty seven and is one of the most beautiful specimens of the age of the two compositions in the possession of the british museum one is a sort of musical enigma a form of composition quite in vogue among the later netherlanders the other is a work in three parts of some length without words and is found in a splendid volume of manuscript music formerly belonging to henry the eighth four sacred compositions two songs and two motets are in the archives of the liceo philharmonico of bologna even with these few examples of his work dunstable's reputation as a great musician seems to rest on solid ground more than half a dozen interesting references to him are made in contemporaneous european writings among them being one by tinctoris a belgian theorist and composer fourteen forty five to fifteen eleven and another by a french verse writer who compares dufay binchois and dunstable as song-writers to the advantage of the englishman 
The passage from Tinctorist refers to England as the Fons et Origo of Counterpoint, and cites Dunstable as her chief composer. Absurd mistakes have crept into the commentaries upon Dunstable. One early writer, Sibald Hayden, 1540, claimed that he was the inventor of Counterpoint, and another identified him with St. Dunstan. These and other errors were handed down by subsequent writers, until Ambrose, in his Musikgeschichte, set most of them right. Of course Counterpoint was not, and in the nature of things could not be, the invention of any one man. It was built up gradually, one school contributing a little here, another there, until a comprehensive system was formed. In England, Dunstable's name was either little known, or else it was soon forgotten, for it fails to appear in an important work, Scriptores Britanniae, published in 1550, scarcely a century after his death. From the fact that all but two of his extant compositions are in continental libraries, and that his reputation, during his lifetime, was evidently far greater in Europe than in England, it is supposed that most of his life was spent abroad. Since none of Dunstable's compositions appear in the Manuscript Canonici, it is evident that his fame was not established in Europe when the collection was made, not later than 1436. Contemporary references to him, however, begin to appear about that time, or shortly after, and it is a remarkable fact that the compositions of Dufay, which are known to have been written after this date, show a marked advance both in contrapuntal skill and in style over those contained in the manuscript canonici. In face of the fact that Dunstable was not only an older contemporary of Dufay and Binchois, but that he was also an excellent master of counterpoint and style, it is therefore not unreasonable to assume that he was one of the important sources upon which these Gallo-Belgians drew for their instruction and inspiration. Like the Netherland composers, Dunstable shows a lack of variety and a failure to adapt his music to the sentiments of the words, but he far surpasses them in sweetness and beauty. His works are among the earliest to exhibit a design founded upon resources other than the plain chant melodies of the church. He was capable of writing learned musical puzzles, thus foreshadowing the frequent practice of the Netherlanders of the next century. But he also wrote in lighter vein, with charm and purity, and definitely renounced the harsh discords employed by Machaut and others. It is with good reason, therefore, that scholars have predicated from these facts the influence of Dunstable upon the early Netherlanders, even though in his native land we find no trace of his teachings until they were imported later from the Low Countries. Through Dunstable, therefore, we are led back to Dufay and his contemporaries, and the real significance of this first Netherland school. The writers belonging to it were for centuries buried under the fame of the later Flemish composers, Ockergum and his pupils. As will be seen, however, Dufay is to be reckoned not only as an important pioneer in the strikingly brilliant achievements of the Netherlanders, but also as the actual founder of a school. Learned and well-versed in the musical science of his day, he possessed furthermore that indefinable touch of genius which enables a man to build a little higher than his forerunners, and leave art enriched by his labours. A large number of his compositions have been recovered, among them being 59 secular songs, 36 sacred songs, 8 whole masses, and about 20 sections or movements of masses. 
150 compositions were discovered by Habel alone, hidden in the archives of Bologna, Rome, and Trieste. Masses and portions of masses are in the Brussels Library, others at Cambrai, still others in the Paris Library, and in Munich, a motet for three voices. The oldest datable work is a chanson, Resveillis vous êtes fait chierly, written in honour of the marriage of Charles Malatesta, Lord of Pesaro, and Vittoria Colonna, in 1415. Dufay was one of the first composers to use the unfilled white notes, and it is believed that he introduced other changes in notation. He deserves great credit for discarding, in his later works, the empty fourths and fifths, as well as the parallel fifths, which still disfigured the music of some of the ablest composers of the early 15th century. We find furthermore in Dufay a more developed, though not very extended, canonic treatment of voices, and again there is occasionally noticeable a strong tendency toward expression, as for example in the mass Ecce Ancilla, which is even more interesting on account of its harmonic character. Moreover, after he settled at Cambrai in 1436, that is, after Dunstable's European fame was established, a new conception, similar to that found in the English composer's works, seems to animate his compositions. His dry methods change, the different voices become more melodious, the harsher discords disappear, and the use of canon grows more frequent. The feature of Dufay's epoch, however, which had a most far-reaching effect, and one which, incidentally, brought the wrath of 15th century critics upon his head, was the practice of using in the mass secular melodies in place of the Gregorian cantus firmus. For example, the folk songs, Ton jamais de duit, Sur le farce pal, and L'homme armé, were incorporated as subjects in a number of masses, which were named after the tunes. The absolute invention of new subjects was foreign to composers of that day, and such familiar tunes, repeated in the various parts of the mass, supplied a familiar nucleus, while the composer's ingenuity found ample play in weaving about it manifold figures and phrases. This was decidedly a new departure, and one that could not be agreeable to the church. But the new fashion was no sooner set than other composers eagerly took it up, Dufay's pupils adopted it and passed it on to the later Netherlanders, who in turn handed it down to the Romans. L'homme armé became such a favourite for the mass that the younger Gallo-Belgians, Fogue and Caron, the Netherlanders Josquin and Lasso, and even the Roman Palestrina in his early work made use of it. In appropriating these secular melodies, usually only the beginning was employed and around this were woven contrapuntal devices. In this manner, the new melody acquired almost the importance of the theme. Imitation of one part by another, at a greater or less interval of time, is, at present, so inevitably a characteristic feature of every musical composition of a higher order, that it is difficult to imagine a time when it was far from being an obvious or necessary element. The invention of this art was for long attributed to Ockergum and his school, though it is now apparent that it was not only practised fifty years earlier by Dufay, but that it was already used as early as 1250, as is seen in the now famous canon Summer is Ecumen In, which has been mentioned above. 
this epoch of the activity of the gallo-belgians resulted in the firm establishment of what might be called the netherland style technical ingenuity was exalted over beauty of sound the use of martial tunes and love songs some of them accompanied by most indiscreet words prevailed in the mass as long as the old polyphony lasted and the art of canon although as yet limited and crude took its place among the indispensable adjuncts of all musical composition of the three composers of this period who are frequently mentioned together by the old writers two have already been briefly discussed the third giles binchois born about fourteen hundred died in fourteen sixty seven years after dunstable and fourteen years before dufay first a soldier then a priest binchois became chaplain chantre to duke philip of burgundy in fourteen fifty two like dufay he was appointed non-resident canon of the cathedral at mons twenty-eight of his compositions are in the manuscript canonici of which all but one are secular six songs and two motets in the munich library have also been recently discovered and transcribed by dr hugo riemann among binchois's extant works are also about a dozen sacred songs and six parts of masses like his contemporaries of the same school binchois was somewhat more interested in technical performance than in expression tinctoris mentions him with great praise as a composer whose fame would endure for ever it is evident also from the testimony of contemporary writers that both dufay and binchois were widely celebrated as masters and teachers of counterpoint another gallo-belgian eloy born about fourteen hundred produced a mass for five voices a rarity for that time this work called dixerunt discipuli is in the vatican library many of the pupils of dufay and binchois among whom were busnois caron fogg basseron and obrecht became more or less celebrated in their time and constituted a kind of second generation or transitional school between the first or gallo-belgian and the later netherland schools growing more familiar with the resources of the contrapuntal method they improved upon the work of their masters while adhering in essentials to their precepts dufay and binchois for instance usually imitated the pattern either in unison or the octave their followers used also the canon in the fifth and carried it out with more skill they discovered the construction of chords though they still had no idea of rational chord progressions busnois especially was a more skilful harmonist than dufay his fame spread to italy and petrucci included a number of his songs in one of the earliest publications about fifteen o three among these pieces is a four-part chanson dieu quel mariage which according to naumann is remarkable not only for the refinement of its harmony but also on account of its masterly treatment of the melody this is placed partly in the tenor and partly in the alto a novel feature for the time with no disturbance of the free motion and canonic flow of the other two parts busnois also had more skill in design than dufay actually employing the beginning of the melody as a theme and building upon it the whole canonic structure of the voices the spirit of change was upon the art of music as it had been in turn upon architecture poetry and painting dry outlines were giving place to greater fullness of detail to greater richness of colouring harmony and expression 
but even as music was the last of the arts to be affected by the renaissance vitality of the late middle ages so it was slow in travelling the tortuous course of technical difficulties which had to be conquered before true beauty of expression could be reached nevertheless even at this time music was a real art possessing laws modes of diction and even traditions though it revealed its youthfulness in its limitations and crudeness it was by no means chaotic the music of the mass already showed definite signs of form there was a shadowy idea of key distribution and efforts to arrive at a satisfactory method of modulation are evident on every hand the compositions of the time begin to show a love of variety and contrast together with extreme regularity in the matter of rhythm during this time also it is clear that in some forms of secular music at least instrumental accompaniments were used sometimes songs and even motets were played and not sung again instruments were counted upon to assist the voices through difficult passages the major seventh was not considered unvocal but the compass of both instruments and voices was exceedingly limited on every hand efforts were made to break through the bonds of old tradition in these and other matters it is plain that our first netherlander had left the troubadour machot far behind the next important advance in the art of polyphony is associated with the name of johannes ockergum to whom the leadership in the art of music passed at the death of dufay in fourteen seventy four like many other musicians of the time ockergum was trained as a choir-boy being one of the fifty-three choristers in the cathedral at antwerp just before the middle of the century about twenty years later we find him in paris as royal chapel master in great favour with king louis the eleventh he travelled to spain at the king's expense and later about fourteen eighty four revisited his native country where he was received at bruges with great ceremony it is evident therefore that his fame was already well established during the lifetime of the older master dufay to whose mantle he fell heir at about age of forty-five it is thought that during the latter period of his life he resided at tours where he died in fourteen ninety five it is most likely that he was a pupil of binchois rather than of dufay the extant compositions of this master are seventeen masses seven motets nineteen chansons and a number of canons one mass is in the possession of the papal chapel and five of the chansons were published by petrucci early in the sixteenth century not long after ockergum's death the missa cuius vistoni was used for many years in the cathedral at munich where the manuscript with corrections made by the singers themselves still exists another mass deo gratia has become one of the curiosities of musical history from the fact that it was written for thirty-six parts with a ninefold canon it may be said at once that ockergum's celebrity and his important place in the history of polyphony rest upon two things his remarkable influence as a teacher and the fact that under him and his pupils the canonic style in extremely ingenious combinations reached the apogee of its development preceding composers had studied and written much about the proper manner of treating two or more melodies in combination about intervals progressions dissonances mensural problems and the art of imitation diminution and inversion and the like some of them had expended their genius in systematizing and classifying the complex rules for contrapuntal writing and they delighted in setting themselves 
difficult tasks to be performed within these rigid rules. This was all very well. It resulted in the establishment of a perfected technique and a body of knowledge, the value of which was recognised by every musician with scholarly aims. Okagum appeared on the scene, at a time when the struggle with technical difficulties seemed to be an end in itself, and his genius, of the mathematical sort, enabled him to master and play with them. It is a mistake to suppose that he devoted himself wholly, or even largely, to the composition of more riddle canons, as they are called, but it is probably a fact that he is most frequently remembered and characterised by them. A hint as to the nature of these curious compositions will be sufficient, perhaps, to mystify the uninitiated reader. The mass, ad omnem tonum, shows, instead of the clefs, question marks as signatures, and it may be sung by using the corresponding accidentals in any church mode. The 36-part mass, with canon for nine parts already mentioned, is not a riddle, but has all the difficulties of one. In Okagum's school is found the so-called crab canon, canon cancrisans, which is first sung through in the usual way from beginning to end, then repeated backward. There is also a canon which, like the canon cancrisans, is to be sung through twice, but from the beginning to the end both times. In the second singing, however, each progression of the original melody down is answered by a corresponding interval up or vice versa. This is known as the inverted canon. One of Okagum's followers, Horbrecht, furnishes us even with a canon which has both the retrograde and the inverted motion. In fact, canonic forms of all varieties and complications were treated by Okagum and his school to the point of exhaustion. It must not be forgotten that the range given to a single voice was much more limited than at present that these compositions must conform to the strictest rules, not only when sung in the normal manner, but when repeated in retrograde or inverted motion, and that the very essence of the work was the perfection attained in adhering to contrapuntal laws, rather than the expression of individual feeling. Okagum himself made these puzzles but rarely, and, as it were, in the manner of providing an intellectual treat for the educated musicians of his day, especially those who formed the church choirs. These difficult works were a test of their ability and thorough acquaintance with church modes. They afforded exercise in transposition from one mode to another, and offered the charm of variety which the special characteristics of each individual mode imparted. Furthermore, they tended to develop the highest artistry the vocalist was capable of, and were an illustration of the variety of combinations possible with the already existing parts. It has often been claimed that Okagum was only a musical pundit, that his works are merely curiosities, depending for their interest on their mathematical ingenuity, and not on their artistic worth. But such a judgment does the master less than justice. Even from the point of view of later and more beautiful achievements, it must be acknowledged that at least some of his compositions have a certain artistic merit. Moreover, the service of Okagum and his school was one of the necessary preliminaries to the full perfection of the art of polyphony. Technical difficulties were solved once for all, and a vast system of theoretical knowledge was prepared by their devoted labours for the use of the greater masters who should follow. So keen a critic and judge as R. G. Kiesewetter, 1841, says of Okagum and his followers, 
they have greater facility in counterpoint and fertility in invention their compositions moreover being no longer mere premeditated submissions to contrapuntal operation are for the most part indicative of thought and sketched with manifest design being also full of ingenious contrivances of an obligato counterpoint at that time just discovered besides the work of okagum is interesting as illustrating a certain phase of character peculiar to the middle ages there was at the time a love of secrecy and mystery which led artists and expert craftsmen to embody the signs of their craft in a private and esoteric system which no one but the initiated could understand in accordance with this trend the writing down of a canon of okagum as has been pointed out often took the form of a special musical design consisting only of a few notes and a short latin inscription the reading of such a canon was not always easy even to the initiated but to the novice it had all the mystery of a delphic oracle it was not possible of course even for the most cultivated musician upon hearing such a work performed to recognize and follow all its complexities okagum was the master who aroused and nourished the taste for these complex achievements in music though he was by no means their inventor such devices though to a less degree were already known to Dufay, and is shown in his canon l'homme armé but okagum brought the art to the point of virtuosity and it is for this reason he stands at the head of the netherlands school judged by the standard of pure art he is at his best as a composer of chansons even these however have long outlived their day just as his contrapuntal riddles have long ceased to tease the intelligence or curiosity of lovers of music it is by virtue of another quality his gift for teaching that okagum lives to-day as the founder of the netherlands school merely his influence must also have ceased when the traditions of that school were superseded by the vital enthusiasm of another but as the teacher of the leaders of succeeding schools he has achieved a kind of immortality sometimes missed by greater artists in the whole history of music okagum as a teacher stands alone only porpora possibly the great singing master of the eighteenth century can be compared to him kiesewetter says through his pupils the art was transplanted into all countries and he must be regarded for it can be proved by genealogy as the founder of all schools from his own to the present age only a few of his most distinguished pupils can be mentioned here jean de roy bassiron jacques barbero pierre de la rue compere agricola caron verbonnet brumel and greatest of all josquin de Prey. some of them such as agricola unfortunately conceived the writing of contrapuntal intricacies to be their chief duty while others use their acquired knowledge to better purposes the belgian hobrecht fourteen fifty to fifteen o five chapel master of notre dame at antwerp was probably not a personal pupil of okagum though a zealous follower and admirer while assimilating and adopting the master's ingenuity he also was able to weave into his masses and motets a personal subjective quality which marks them with the composer's individuality so highly esteemed was hobrecht in his day that in fourteen ninety four the whole choir of the principal church in bruges for which he had written a mass 
travelled to Antwerp in order to express thanks and do him honour. During Ockergham's supremacy, a matter of forty years or so, some of the more interesting forms which had been cultivated in the time of Dufay disappeared. We look in vain for the medieval rondo, the ballad, the accompanied secular art song, and the paraphrased church song, with instrumental accompaniment. The contribution of Ockergham and his followers was the development of technical resources and a greater freedom, both in range and style, in vocal composition. His unremitting, thoughtful search for fundamental rules established the art of polyphony on a firm basis and provided a safe starting point for the utterance of truth and passion. It is the fate, however, of work depending on a passing taste to grow old quickly, and Ockergham himself probably outlived his popularity. But his pupils spread over Europe and perpetuated his learning, and some of them, at least, enriched the art by a fresher genius. Unlike the old French and Gallo-Belgian masters who stayed at home, these writers overflowed into Italy and Germany, established schools of instruction, and founded choruses for the production of vocal works. Among them, moreover, was one genius who exercised the strongest influence on the art of music and deserves to rank as one of its greatest masters. That genius was Josquin Desprez. Josquin Desprez is almost the last in the long list of Netherland composers, and overtops them all, with the exception of Lassou. The year of his birth is uncertain, but has been placed at about 1450, since he was a singer in the papal chapel under Pope Sixtus IV, 1471 to 1484. He has been claimed as a countryman by Italian writers, because his name was modified into Del Prato, by German, because ethnologically and geographically the Low Countries are a part of Germany, by the French, because the Netherlands became a political dependency of France about 200 years after Josquin's death, and naturally the Belgians claim some share in the fame of the man who represents the glory of Belgian music. The towns of Condé, Tours and Cambrai, the home of Dufay, and of others have all been candidates for the honour of his birth but scholars are now agreed that he was born at least in the province of Ainault, which belonged, during the middle and later 15th century, to the dominions of Philip the Good of Burgundy. Josquin had been chapel singer at Milan before entering the papal choir in 1484, and afterward he is found in the service of Louis XII of France, with whom he was a great favourite. Like some of his predecessors, he received an appointment to a canonry, but seems not to have kept the office very long. In the year 1515, the Netherlands became German, and, according to Conrad Poitinger, Josquin left France for a position in the Netherlands chapel of Maximilian I. It seems probable, therefore, that he spent the latter part of his life at Condé in his native country, where he died in 1521. Ockergham was still alive, and Dufay less than a score of years dead, when Josquin's fame sprang to the sky. So great a stir did his gifts create in Rome, that beside him the fame of all other composers paled. The Duke Hercules d'Esti of Ferrara, for whom Josquin composed a mass entitled Hercules Dux Ferrariae, called him the Prince of Music, and the Abate Baini, director of the pontifical chapel in the early 19th century, says of him, 
in a short time by his new productions he becomes the idol of europe there is no longer tolerance for any one but josquin josquin alone is sung in every chapel in christendom nobody but josquin in italy nobody but josquin in france nobody but josquin in germany in flanders in hungary in spain josquin and josquin alone fables grew up about his name as about that of homer or Willem tell it is said that the french monarch under whom josquin served had a bad voice and a still worse ear nevertheless he was fond of music and desired his brilliant retainer to compose something in which he could take part josquin was equal to the occasion he constructed a quartet somewhat different from the usual sort there being two upper parts in a canon and a free bass to these he added a fourth part the vox regis as he flippantly called it consisting of a single note which it was the king's office to repeat almost incessantly throughout the piece the emoluments even of a royal musician were evidently not always prompt or large and josquin is reported more than once to have given the cue to the king by compositions whose opening biblical words contained a punning comment on the royal dilatoriness in paying salaries or whose sacred meaning could be amusingly applied to his own indigence when finally the king good-naturedly took the hint josquin poured out his gratitude in a motet lord thou hast dealt graciously with thy servant one biographer of josquin cynically declares that the thank offering was not at all up to the mark of the petitions gaiety and humour were often in evidence in his music as one would expect from so witty lively a character his work generally shows a careful finish and attention to details Naumann points out that he takes greater care in declamation, groups his voices for better colour effects, and achieves results, especially in the masses, which foreshadow the grandeur and simplicity of the great period of ecclesiastical music under Palestrina. The Passion Motets and Stabat Mater for five voices are among the most famous of his works. Severe contrapuntal art is shown in the two Lom Arme masses, as well as in Pange Lingua and fortuna desperata the contrapuntal ingenuity however is lost sight of in a genial naive quality combined with nobility and ceremonial dignity his fame as a writer of chansons equalled his reputation in sacred music in these also he stands far ahead of his contemporaries paying more attention to syllabic values and entering into the mood of the text his manner is unforced and gay and here too his great contrapuntal ingenuity is veiled by poetical nicely calculated effects concerning his work as a whole in comparison with his predecessors it is generally considered that he is more concise easier to comprehend less laden with artifice and able at last to put soul into the elaborate framework of the polyphonic art he is the first important musician whose work has come down to us in such quantities as to enable critics to judge adequately of his powers he was in the prime of life when the art of printing music by means of movable types was invented, and for a century or more his compositions were included in almost every collection that was made. Among his extant works are 32 masses, fragments of masses, motets, some of them for five parts, and chansons. Portions of his work have been given to the public successively by Petrucci, early 16th century, in Junta's edition, Rome, 1521, in the Missa 12 of Graffaeus, 1539, 
and no less than seven special editions of portions of his works were made during the sixteenth century masses in manuscript are to be found in the archives of the papal chapel as well as in the libraries of munich and cambrai besides these numerous examples have been preserved in the works of glarion siebold hayden forkel burney hawkins kiesewetter ambrose and others the number and importance of his commentators and editors are glowing tributes to the importance of the man himself with the exception of lasso no other netherland master enjoyed such fame either during life or after death he is called Jodocus in affection and described as at once learned and pleasing everywhere graceful and universal favourite of the age welcomed everywhere ruling without a rival luther mentions the Jodocus as one of his favourite composers saying that others were mastered by notes while joscan did what he pleased with them and with all this popularity even glorification what living singer has ever sung or what living amateur has ever heard a note of his music specimens of it are not current it is true but neither are they inaccessible three hundred and fifty years are as nothing in the lifetime of a book a building a statue even of a picture so much more perishable dante had need of a commentator before joscan could have learned to read the frescoes of giotto were beginning to decay ere he visited italy and the beautiful cathedral of st quentin had entered its third century ere he first raised his voice in it the eclipse of joscan's fame however appears not to be quite so complete and thorough to-day as when the above words were written eighteen sixty two a number of german societies now regularly include his compositions in their programmes and some of his works have been given in new york during the current year nineteen fourteen but no matter how neglected he occupies a great and honoured place in the history of music hitherto as we have seen musicians had been almost entirely absorbed in the study and application of technical details their art was first and foremost an intellectual exercise and its appeal naturally almost entirely limited to the intellect to the modern amateur good music is that which touches him he wishes to be conscious of that indefinable spirit which is at once both simpler and deeper than intellect the greater part of the contrapuntal subtleties of ockergum must have left the listener cold remaining in history only as amazing tours de force whose artificial perfection could only be a stage in the development towards something higher it was this higher quality achieved by joscan which placed him at the head of composers of his time and gives him importance in history he too possessed the technical skill and learning necessary to the construction of contrapuntal riddles he too was sometimes artificial and occasionally surpassed even ockergum in his quaint and grotesque combinations but such intellectual gymnastic feats were not an important matter with him he used and has the distinction of being the first to use learning as a means of expression as the vehicle of personal subjective and sympathetic utterance his style became simpler and more transparent his conception of the text more poetic and by reason of these qualities truth and beauty of expression are his chief merits the labour of the netherlanders from dufay to the death of joscan offers a spectacle of almost unparalleled activity and painstaking research it was for the art of polyphony the period of youth and adolescence with its enormous energy its too great reliance upon intellect 
and its comparative lack of mellowness and heart. Dufay was a singer in the papal chapel exactly one hundred years before Josquin held the same position. He, with other Gallo-Belgians and the English Dunstable, added to the body of technical knowledge, established the principles of design in composition, and brought sacred music into closer touch with folk song. Ockergum and his immediate followers were intoxicated, not with the wine of poetry or passion, but with a desire for intellectual artifice and refinement. They expended their genius on technique as an end, and produced compositions beside which even the most intricate contrapuntal efforts of later days seem almost like child's play. Such work carries within itself, however, the seeds of its own destruction, and so far as it rested upon puzzling subtleties, it was doomed to die. Nevertheless, the schools of Dufay and Ockergum prepared the way and the materials for the third and greatest of the indigenous Netherlands schools, that of Josquin. To him, the resources of counterpoint were merely the means to obtain the beauty of expression. It is for this reason that we regard him as the first great composer. End of section 17